Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor for our Carmel campus, uh, or as I'm affectionately known by our Noblesville staff, I'm the fourth string. And so <laughs> glad to be here today. Uh, before we get started, hey, I just want to thank you to those of you who are giving today, whether you're giving uh, a check or if you're using the envelopes in the seat back, or uh, especially if you give online, special shout out to our online givers in the house. Uh, that's what my family does. We give online, and I know it can be an awkward moment when that bag comes by and you got nothing to put in there, and people next to you give you the stink eye. Um, but you know in your heart, right? Bible tells us that man looks at what's on the outside, God sees what's on the inside. And that goes for your checkbook as well as your heart. So God knows. And so thank you so much uh, for giving. We couldn't do what we do without your generous gifts. So um, we appreciate you very much. Well, we're in the uh, fourth and final week of this series called Why I'm Not a Christian. And I want you to know up front, this series title is not about me, why I'm not a Christian. I very much am a Christian. I think maybe that will put you at ease a little bit. Uh, to know that I very firmly believe in what we talk about up here every week. In fact, I am blessed uh, most weeks to get to share at our Carmel campus. I was looking back through the schedule, and I've had a couple people say, like, I didn't know you still worked here. <laughs> you know, and I've, it's been, I think, last August since I was here. And we try to do this more frequently, um, but I will be here a lot more this summer um, because I heard your lead pastor's gone off somewhere. So um, <laughs> I, talk, I had a text with Paul this week. It sounds like he's having a great trip in Israel. I'm just so excited for him and what the Lord's doing. Uh, in him over there, and I, I believe that he's not going to be the same person coming back, and in a good way, in a very good way, so I'm glad. But we are in the fourth week of this series, Why I'm Not a Christian, and what we're doing is we're looking at this essay, a series of essays, really, by a British philosopher, Bertrand Russell, and it was written in 1927, and uh, it was a series of essays about why he's not a Christian, and in fact, if you have seen the movie, the recent movie, The Case for Christ... I don't know how many of you have seen that, but this essay is prominently featured in that movie. It was kind of an inspiration for Lee Strobel before he became a Christian. But each week in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at one argument that Russell makes in this essay, and we're looking at it through a biblical worldview. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, these objections that Russell had in 1927, quite honestly, are very much the same as objections we see to Christianity today. In fact, I get to meet people uh, very, very frequently at our Carmel campus, I'm sure it's the same here, who come to Genesis that aren't believers, they aren't Christians, and there are probably some of you in the room that you're coming to church because somebody dragged you here or your neighbor kept inviting you and wouldn't shut up about it and you wanted to go check it out, but you don't believe what we talk about. And so I get to meet with people on a regular basis, and when I ask them about their faith journey, a lot of times the objections that they have are the same kind of things that we've been talking about over this four-week series, like, you know, how can you believe there's only one way? Or how can I know the Bible is reliable? And, and so uh, because these are very real objections, um, we encounter them in 1927. We encounter them today. And so when you're out sharing your faith with someone who's not a Christian, you may encounter some of these very same objections. When I'm sharing my faith with neighbors and with friends, and I won't say with coworkers because everybody I work with is a Christian, believe it or not. You're probably glad to know that. Um, but when we're sharing our faith, we'll encounter some of these same objections. And because they're real objections people have to our faith, real questions that people, if they could ask God, might have for God, what we don't want to do is make light of them. We don't want to minimize them and say they're not important. We don't want to try to explain them away. Or especially in light of today's topic, we don't want to make excuses for them. Instead, what we'd like to do is look at these objections, and what I hope we've done over the four weeks is look at these objections uh, in light of a biblical worldview. So if you believe the Bible is true, then what's true about this 
topic? What's true about this objection? What's the less obvious side of the question? Because let's be honest, as a society, we love easy answers, don't we? We, we love the 24-minute sitcom ending uh, we, where everything's wrapped up in a neat bow. We, we love the political points of view where one side is absolutely right and can do no wrong and the other side is out of their ever-loving mind, right? We love uh, tweets and snaps and one-minute Instagram videos and 15 minutes of fame. And what we don't like is messy. But the truth is real life is messy. The truth is messy. And people are messy. And the simplest answer or the answer that seems like it should be the obvious one well, it isn't always the right one. And so if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one that looks like this around you on the floor. And uh, Romans is page, uh, sword drill, anybody find it? Page 782 in this Bible, 782. And by the way, if you don't, a feather just came out of this thing. <laughs> Kraus hunting ducks up here on the stage? What's going on, man? Uh, if, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, if you don't have a Bible, please take this one with you. Uh, it's our gift to you. We want you to have uh, some place where you can be in the Word of God. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be, page 782. And the objection I want to talk about today is this. The church is responsible for so much injustice. The church is responsible for so much injustice. In, in his essay, Russell neatly summarizes the argument like this. He says, in the so-called ages of Christian faith, there was every kind of cruelty practiced upon all sorts of people in the name of religion. And the sad truth is you don't have to look very far at the history of the church uh, to find its darker moments, right? The medieval crusades where people often go to immediately. Well, what about the crusades? You know, medieval crusades where groups of people who belonged to certain churches uh, would kill so-called pagans and heretics in the name of Christ. Or maybe you think about the Spanish Inquisition um, where the stated goal was to make sure that people who were converting to Christianity were orthodox in their faith, but had the actual result of over 150,000 people being charged with crimes and as many as 5,000 people being executed in the name of Christ. Or in this country, we had the Salem witch trials where uh, mostly young girls were killed uh, supposedly to defend the Christian faith. And maybe the closest to us today was many of the founding fathers and the powerful landowners in the 18th and 19th century used the Bible, used their Christian faith to defend the practice of holding African slaves. Now, some of the arguments they would use was that Africans were descended from Noah's son Ham and that it was Ham's sin in the Bible that caused their skin to become dark. That the trade winds were favorable from the west coast of Africa to the east coast of the United States, which was clearly God's providence on the slave trade because it made it easy for the ships to get here. And then when anybody would dare argue with, with passages from Scripture where it talked against slavery, they would say, well, those passages were for that time and that place and that culture, and they don't really apply today. Ah, but you think, those are history. That's ancient. The kind of injustice doesn't still happen today. But I think that's a dangerous point of view for us to take. Uh, because those of us who are Christians, and especially those of us who have been Christians for a long time, we can tend to be immune to injustice that still exists in the name of God. And in fact, if you ask people outside our community, or if you ask people outside the church uh, what they think of when they hear the words evangelical Christian, you might be surprised by what you hear. You probably hear things like uh, bombings at abortion clinics or shootings at abortion clinics. Uh, protests at funerals, signs telling people who God hates 
or who they think he hates. Uh, Homophobes, uh, people who want to take away the rights of women or minorities or immigrants. And so here's what I want you to hear, and especially if you are a white, middle-class Christian, which describes most of our church, and uh, if you have been for a long time, I want to tell you that there are many people, many people who have experienced injustice or judgment or persecution from the church or from someone inside the church. And sometimes we just skate right past it. But I'm confident there are people here in this room who have experienced something like judgment from someone in the church. And something about your past has caused someone to make you believe that you're not welcome or you're not accepted. Uh, maybe you were sexually abused by a Christian or by someone who, who represented the church, someone who was supposed to be a safe place for you. Uh, maybe you've just seen how some Christian leaders tend to use their position to gain money or power and it doesn't sit well with you. Uh, or you've seen something done by Jesus' people or people who claim to be Jesus's people, and uh, you know it's not right, and you don't want any part of it. Well, if you're here today, and one of those things describes your story, can I just say I'm sorry? On behalf of the church, I'm sorry for the way you've been treated. Uh, I'm sorry for what you've dealt with. And I want, you to, I want to let you know that on some level anyway, I can relate. See, most of my life, I didn't spend in church. In fact, today, uh, I still am at that place where I've been not a Christian for longer than I've been a Christian, although uh, the doors are closing on that moment. Um, but for most of my life, I wasn't in church. Uh, my parents divorced uh, very early on in my life when I was five years old, and uh, I, did, we didn't, I didn't grow up in church. But there was a time, a brief time in a very formative part of my life from about 13 to 16 where my mom, we would go see my mom on weekends, and my mom found a church. And it was a place where um, I was accepted and I became a part of the youth group, and I got great friends there, and I was baptized there, and it was an incredible place for me. But then something happened. My mom uh, married the pastor's brother, and it didn't take very long before things uh, went awry, and they got divorced, and because they were getting divorced, my family was asked to leave the church. And so there was this place that I felt welcome and accepted and where I connected with God, and I was asked never to come back again. At 16 years old, a very... Uh, influential time in my life, I was not welcome in the place that was my refuge. And I was convinced that I would never, ever become one of those Christians. Someday I'll let you know how that ended for me. <laughs> but I've heard it said that the best argument against Christianity is some Christians. You know, maybe Gandhi said it best or more eloquently when he said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. And then he put his finger on the problem when he said, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And so I wanted to point us to Romans 1 this morning because uh, Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church. And he wrote it to a church in the city of Rome, and it was a big church. And unlike many of the churches that were prevalent around the first century, uh, this was not mostly a church full of Jewish people who had converted to Christianity. It was mostly full of what you call Gentiles or non-Jews who had become Christians uh, because it was in a very cosmopolitan city in Rome. And so Paul starts out this letter talking about injustice. Now, the NIV, which we usually use, doesn't translate this word injustice, but many translations do. I'll point it out to you in a minute. But Paul does a brilliant job laying out where injustice in the world comes from. And we're going to start in Romans 1.18. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be on the side screens here. Romans 1.18 says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven 
against all the godlessness and wickedness of the people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, that word wickedness, that very last word there, is sometimes translated as injustice. And so stop right there for a minute. What I want you to see is this, that uh, wickedness or injustice suppresses the truth. And what he's talking about here is the gospel. The truth is the gospel. It's the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he says that when injustice happens, it's actually harmful to the spread of the gospel. When, when there's wickedness in us, it keeps the gospel from spreading. It can, it can prevent the gospel from spreading. So when Christians protest, for instance, against a group of people, it doesn't serve to advance the kingdom. It actually hinders the kingdom. It, 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 it keeps the gospel from spreading. When, when you post some rant on your Facebook page about the, a certain group or about the behavior of a certain pe- person, it doesn't serve to advance the kingdom of God. It can actually suppress the truth is what Paul is saying here. That's what's happening in the church in Rome. Let's go on. Verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What Paul is saying is that there is stuff in nature that is so incredible. All it can do is display the glory and the power of God. And I know if you're a Christian, I know you've seen this somewhere. Haven't you been to a place where you looked around and you thought, I cannot believe that some people think this is an accident. Have you seen that? Have you experienced that? I've had that experience so many times, but the one that like instantly popped into my mind when I was thinking about this verse was a time uh, that my wife and I were at Disney World. It was right before we had kids, and Disney World's not the place. I know that wasn't an accident, okay? That's very purposeful in the way they take your money from you. Um, But (laughs) my wife and I were staying at this hotel on the Disney World property, and it was one of those hotels where you can take the, uh, the boat, you know, the ferry to downtown Disney. And so we're sitting here, we're waiting for the ferry, and uh, there's this little channel that comes out of the lake, and, and there's people that are feeding fish. There's fish in this channel, and they have one of those machines that you put the quarter in, and it's like a gumball machine, and the fish food comes out in your hand, and then your hand smells like fish food for the rest of the day, you know what I'm talking about. But you can feed the fish, right? And so there's people feeding the fish, and I thought, well, we're waiting for the boat. Let's get some fish food. So I put a quarter in, get the food out. I'm feeding the fish. And then this great blue heron comes and lands like on the other side of the street. So there's this little channel, maybe six feet wide. And this fish are being fed over here. And on this other side, there's this great blue heron that lands. Majestic bird, beautiful bird, right? And so I'm, I'm feeding the fish and I think, oh, I'm going to feed the heron. So I throw a piece of food over there and the heron just like dead still, just completely ignores it. So well, maybe he didn't see it. So Another minute, I take a piece of food, and I hit him, like, right in the, like, right in the side. Like, I'm going to make sure he sees this one. And Heron just dead still. And so I thought, well, I don't know. Maybe he can't feel it. And so I took a piece of food, and I, like, aimed right between his eyes. Like, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm, I'm trying to be nice to this Heron. I want to feed him. And so I throw this piece of food. It hits him right in the beak, and it just bounces off on the ground. This Heron is just watching these fish. He's just watching so intently. And after about five minutes of this, the boat's coming see the boat. After about five minutes, this heron picks up a piece of food off the ground and he flies across the stream and he drops the food in the water and a fish comes up and grabs the food and the heron grabs the fish and eats it. Are you kidding me? Like, how can that be an accident that somewhere millions of years ago, there was this like explosion and these atoms just like formed this heron that knew how to pick up fish food and feed fish and feed itself. That's crazy. That can't be an accident. What Paul is saying is that, that, that God reveals his glory, his, 
his power through his creation, that we can see it. And so that people who look at creation and don't see God, they are without excuse, Paul says. They're without excuse. There's no excuse not to believe in the creator, God. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their hearts, foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And right here, Paul says, right here, he's going to go on and say, this is where injustice comes from. Injustice in the name of Christ comes from here. It's people who, although they know God, they neither give him glory or give him thanks. And in a lot of cases... And especially in these major faux pas in history that we talked about, where the Christian church has been so far off its mission. I mean, you've got to go a long way down this road of not glorifying God or not giving thanks to him. To get, you've got to go pretty far down this road to get to the slave trade. Right? You've got to go pretty far down this road to get to the Holocaust. But the truth is, most of us walk down this road on a regular basis of forgetting to thank God and forgetting to give glory to him, like when, our, when things go south in our lives, when, when circumstances hit that we don't understand, it's, it's easy. It's so easy, isn't it, to, to blame God, to forget about the good things he's done in our, our lives, to, to stop thanking him. We can wonder and doubt whether God's even in control or does he care. And as a result, what we do, Paul says, we take him off his throne and we put ourselves on the throne. Right? That's what he says. He, he says they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like human being. See, here's what we learn, and this is in your notes if you want to write this down. Injustice happens when we trade God's agenda for ours. Injustice happens anytime we trade God's agenda for ours. We step away, we turn away, and what's the result? Well, we can look down just a few verses and see, but before we do that, I want to tell you something about this passage. This passage, you may recognize this, it's commonly uh, referred to as the homosexuality passage. Because it's the place in scripture, at least in the New Testament, that most directly addresses the issue of homosexuality. In verse 24 to 27, Paul talks about how people in Rome are engaging in homosexual acts, and he condemns that. But what I, there's something I don't want us to miss in this, all right? And it's this. Paul has already told us that the, those acts are not the problem. That Are they wrong? Yeah, he says that, right? They're, they're sinful, but that's not the root of the problem. Paul says, because of this... God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Because of what? Because they didn't glorify God. Because they didn't give thanks to him. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Paul says that's the problem in this. And then he's going to go on to list a whole other raft of things that that causes. It's not just about homosexuality. See, here's the thing about injustice. And especially as it relates to Christians today. Guys, we are so hung up on behavior. We are so hung up on behavior. We're really good at judging people at discriminating against people, at looking at behavior and putting people in categories. And the truth for us, for some of us at least, probably for all of us, is that we assign people value based on their behavior. We do. I mean, look at, I mean, look at it. If, you, if somebody doesn't have a job, whether we like to or not, in our eyes, they probably have less value than someone who has a really important job. Right? If uh, they... Uh, or smoke, or drink, or do drugs, in our mind, often people have less value than if they have a really neat and clean house, and they homeschool their kids, and they grow organic vegetables in their spare time, and they make their own kombucha, right? I mean, 
I don't know what your categories are. They're probably different than mine. But don't we do this? Don't we assign people value based on how they behave or maybe what they drive or how they drive or what, how they dress or who they vote for? But don't we categorize people? Don't we give people value based on their behavior? Do you see what Gandhi might have meant when he said, your Christians are so unlike your Christ? So what happens as a result? Paul's going to go on, verse 29. Let's skip down there. He says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness. There's that word again that's often translated injustice. With every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. Yes, that's still a sin. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil because there aren't enough ways of doing evil in the world. We're going to invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents, kids. That's what happens when we turn away from God. We disobey our parents. That's a result. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And that, Paul says, that is where injustice comes from. Now, a couple of things that I just want to cover before we go on to talk about the solution because there is a solution. You know, one of the things that we are firm believers of at Genesis Church is we always want to leave you here with hope. Like most of you, during the week, you go to a place where you don't get a lot of hope. And so on Sunday, if you're going to invest your time in a place like this, we want you to leave with some hope. And so we've got some hope for you because there is a solution to this problem. But first, a couple of things I want to say about the church causing injustice. And first, it's this, to be fair, not all injustice is caused by the church or not by religion at all. I mean, over history, uh, atrocities have been committed by nearly every worldview. Uh, the communist Chinese, uh, Russian, and Cambodian regimes all rejected organized religion, but yet they're responsible for more genocide than any organized religion in history. Uh, and if we look to today, we see ISIS carrying out crimes against humanity in the name of Islam. And in Myanmar, which is a place that's become um, really dear to my heart, in Myanmar, uh, the Muslims are being discriminated against by the Buddhist majority. The Buddhists are discriminating against people and taking them hostage and making them slaves. I mean, the Rohingyas there are being persecuted by the Buddhist majority. Every segment of society, every worldview has caused injustice in the world. Why is that? Well, pastor and author Tim Keller says it this way. He says, we can only conclude that there is some violent impulse so deeply rooted in the human heart that it expresses itself regardless of what beliefs uh, what the beliefs of a particular society might be, whether socialist or capitalist, whether religious or irreligious, whether individualistic or hierarchical. Now, if this is true, then it means that the existence, the very existence of injustice within a worldview doesn't, doesn't necessarily uh, invalidate the beliefs of that worldview. I think you know this from other experiences. You've probably heard, for example, of um, injustice being committed by doctors, some doctors overcharge patients on purpose, or they take Medicare cases that they shouldn't take, or they, they prescribe drugs that people don't really need just so they can keep people's business. But you've probably never said, you know what, all doctors are hypocrites. I'm never going to go to a doctor again. By the way, that's not a very good healthcare strategy, okay? So just take it from your friend Steve. Uh, still, even if injustice committed by Christians or committed by the church doesn't invalidate the beliefs of Christianity, there are some things that we can do to redeem the idea that the church should be a place of justice and a place of peace. It should be a shining example, in fact, of peace and justice in the world. We, we should be the beacon of hope 
for the entire world because that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, you are a shining city on a hill. And so if you're not a Christian, all right, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope I help you understand uh, some ways how we get off track sometimes. I, I hope you see that it's not inherent in the belief system of Christianity to cause injustice or to be bad or evil or hypocritical, but to know that we sometimes like stray from the path that God's laid out for us, and that causes injustice. But for the rest, of this the rest of this message, if you're not a Christian, you're off the hook. Because what I want to do is I want to spend the last few minutes talking to Christians here, because I think there are some things that we can do to redeem this idea of the church being a place of justice and peace. Uh, three things, in fact, that I've written in your notes, again, if you want to follow along, and they're this. Uh, number one is to be humble. Be humble. You've got to remember where you came from. Remember what it was like before Christ came into your life. Remember what your behavior may have been like. Remember what your priorities were before Jesus became an important part of your life. Think back for a moment at the you you used to be. How different was that person from who you are now? How far has God brought you? Remember, one key to the good news of Jesus is this. It's found in Romans 5. Romans 5, 6 reminds us, you see that at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And that word that's translated here, powerless, <laughs> can be translated as without power. We had no power. We had no power to do anything. We had no power to change our circumstances. We had no power to make things any different. But while we were still powerless, Christ died for us. Christ died for me. Christ died for you. You didn't have anything to do with it. Christ died for you while you were powerless. Christ died for me while I was powerless. I had no power to change anything. I had no power to make my situation better. But God did it for us. And so there's no reason to boast, no matter how far we've come. When you look back, whether you see somebody who's just a little bit different than you are now or a whole lot different from who you are now, you have no reason to boast about that because God is the one that did the work. Christ died for us while we were still powerless. And when you're humble about that, knowing that it wasn't you who saved you, but it was Christ who saved you, it's easy to do the second thing, which is to be compassionate. Be compassionate. That, that word compassion comes from actually two Latin roots. The word passion, which means suffer, and calm, which means together with. We suffer together with. When we see someone who doesn't know Christ or who should know Christ but isn't acting like they know Christ, we're not supposed to judge their behavior. Instead, we should be compassionate towards them. Now, I'm talking about non-Christians here, okay? I'm not talking about rebuking Christians. That's different, but I'm talking about non-Christians here. I want to show you what Jesus did because Jesus is our example for life and ministry, right? And so I want to show you what Jesus did when he saw people who weren't followers of his uh, doing things that he didn't agree with. In Matthew 9, 36, it says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, like sheep without a shepherd. We don't have a whole lot of sheep in Indiana, but we do have some. And so just imagine that you're driving down the road on your way home from church. Maybe you have to go through the country. And standing in the middle of the road is a sheep. And if you don't stop your car, you're going to run over and flatten the sheep and maybe get yourself a nice wool pelt out of the deal. But that's not really what you want for the front fender of your car. And so you stop. What are you going to do when you stop and see this sheep? who's doing something really stupid and standing in the middle of the road. 
Do you get out and yell at the sheep? What are you doing, you dumb sheep? Can't you see this is a road? Can't you read the sign? Speed limit's 55. You're going to get killed. You should know better. Do they know better? No, they're a sheep. Maybe you, maybe you take its little hoof and start patting it and said, you know what, honey, I just need to tell you the truth and love. Um, you're going to get hurt if you stand in the middle of the road. He doesn't understand. He's a sheep. Maybe, maybe you just go around and then you go home and you post on Facebook, sheep are so stupid. I can't believe how some of them act. Maybe they'll see it and they'll be convicted by that. No, they don't have Facebook. They're a sheep. What do you do if you see a sheep in the middle of the road? Well, if you're compassionate, what you'll do is you'll take them and you'll gently lead them back to the shepherd because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's what we got to do. We can't be so focused on behavior, especially the behavior of non-Christians. We've got to lead them to the shepherd and let the shepherd correct them. The shepherd has the hook. The shepherd has the staff. The shepherd has all the tools to correct that sheep. We just need to take them back to the shepherd. And this leads to the third thing we can do to redeem the church's reputation, and it's to be a listener, to be a listener. One of the things you find out very quickly in ministry is that everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. And man, if you're just willing to listen, they're willing to tell you most of the time. They'll tell you their story. And if you listen, you'll find out why they believe what they believe and why they behave how they behave and how they came to get to the place that they're at now and how they've been hurt. And you can use this not to make them into your next project, but you can use this to love them well. And being a good listener often means that we ditch our agenda and replace it with God's agenda, which is really, really difficult. But remember, doing the opposite is how we got here in the first place, right? We took God's agenda and we've replaced it with ours. And so if we take our agenda off the throne and replace it with God's, we become a really, really good listener. And so this week, here's my challenge to you. This week, if you want to be a good listener, if you want to be humble, be compassionate, be a good listener, here, here's what I want you to do. Have a conversation with someone. Have a conversation with someone who has, who's different than you, who has a, a different faith background. Maybe they're not a Christian. Maybe they're another religion. Maybe they're a different skin color, a different ethnicity, a different socioeconomic class, someone you wouldn't normally hang out with. And here's, here's the key to the conversation, right? Second part of the challenge is I want you to do 25% of the talking and 75% listening. Have that conversation. Initiate that conversation. Just talk, right? Be humble. Be compassionate. Be a listener. I really believe those three things are the keys to bringing the church back to where she needs to be. Because, look, I'm a big believer in the church. I am. I believe the local church is the hope of the world. I've given my life to the church. I, I gave up a great job at a great company surrounded by great friends. to walk. I walked out to become a pastor, to come to this place because I believe in the mission of Jesus. I believe in his bride, the church. And I believe if there's going to be any change of any importance in this world before Jesus comes back, it's going to be through the church. It's going to be through you and it's going to be through me. And I think the church is still relevant. And I believe that if we can return to our first love, if we can take our agenda off the throne and put God's agenda back on the throne, we can still be that shining city on a hill. I believe that with all my heart. And I want to show you as we close what this might look like. In the book of Acts chapter 2, we see a picture of the first church. So just timing-wise, what's happened is Jesus was crucified. He was resurrected. He walked around on the earth for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. 
and then the, the first believers are left to assemble this church. And, and it's a church that many modern-day churches point to as the model for what the church should be like. And it's Acts chapter 2, starting with 42. Um, and there's this great passage that talks about what this church was like. It says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and watch this now, and enjoying the favor of all the people. Enjoying the favor of all the people. What does that mean? It means people like them. That people actually like them and not just to other Christians, that all the people, even the people that didn't believe what they believed, looked at the first church and said, you know what? Those are good people. Because of how they loved one another and how they loved even those outside the church, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. And how is that different from how people often view the church today? And now watch this. What was the result? What was the result of enjoying the favor of all the people? What was the result of putting God's agenda on top? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This, this passage is so special to me because that's, that's my goal right there. That's my life goal, adding to the number daily those who are being saved. Like I want to spend the rest of my life robbing hell to pay heaven. <laughs> I, want to, I want to get to heaven someday and see people who are there only because of Genesis Church, only because of your faithfulness and my faithfulness. I wanna get to heaven and see these people and have Jesus come up alongside of me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That because of our faithfulness, because of my faithfulness, and because time and time again, I chose to sacrifice my agenda in favor of God's, that people are added to the number of those who are in heaven. I hope you'll join me on that mission. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, are so sorry for the places and the times that we've walked away from your agenda. We've walked down that road of forgetting to give you glory and praise and forgetting to give you thanks. God, where we've taken your message and twisted it all out of proportion and made it our message, we're sorry. We repent of that today. Lord, we need your help. We want the church to be a beacon of hope. We want it to be a place of peace. We want... We want uh, your praise to be what people sing. We want people to look at us and not see us, but see you. And so help us in that. Even this week as we go and have conver a conversation with somebody who's different from us, help us to, to be a beacon of hope, even if we're just speaking 25%, God, and we're listening the rest of the time. Lord, we need you. We love you. And we praise you for all things. In Jesus' name.